Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 56 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Werner Vinge. His 1981 novella, True Names, was one of the first science fiction stories to explore the concept of virtual reality, and he also coins the phrase, the technological singularity, which describes a point in the future at which technology creates intelligences beyond our comprehension. His novels, A Fire Upon the Deep, A Deepness in the Sky, and Rainbow's End all won the Hugo Award, and his latest novel, The Children of the Sky, is out now. All right, well, let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Werner Vinge. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Dave. Okay, so you're famous for coining the phrase the technological singularity. How did you first come up with that? I used that term first, I think, at an artificial intelligence conference in 1982. Actually, it was a conference that was Marvin Minsky, a famous AI researcher, and and several science fiction writers were on the panel. Robert Sheckley and Jim Hogan, and I made the observation that it, if we got human-level artificial intelligence, you know that that would certainly be a world-shaking event. If we got superhuman-level intelligence, then what happened afterwards would be fundamentally unintelligible. In the past, when some new invention came along, it generally made all sorts of unexpected consequences. But those consequences could be understood. In other words, uh, my, the example I like to use is that if, if you had a magical time machine and you could bring Mark Twain forward into the 21st century, you could explain our world to him and he, and he would understand it uh, quite quickly, come up to speed in a day or two, uh, and he would probably have, probably have a very good time with it. On the other hand, if you tried to do that experiment that explanatory experiment with a goldfish, there's no way you could explain our world to a goldfish in a way that uh, would be uh, meaningful as it is to us humans. So that is a consequence of this particular type of, of progress, that is, in making creatures that are smarter than humans. And it occurred to me, and I think it was probably even as I was talking on this panel, it occurred to me that the term for that was a little bit like with a black hole. You can't, there's only a, a few types of information you can get out of a black hole in general relativity. And that this was sort of a, a social or a technological example uh, of the same sort of thing. Now, that the particular idea of superintelligence, not just AI, but superhuman intelligence AI, is intrinsic and in stuff that had been going on at, back into at least the 50s. And the notion that it would be something that would not be understandable was probably lurking out there too. I think the only, the only thing that in, in that talk that really, uh, in that uh, panel, that, what I said, that um, made a special difference was uh, the, the term, which I think highlighted the, 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 uh, the, the situation. So what are some of the scenarios for how the singularity might unfold? I, I think there's all sorts of different paths to the singularity, at least at least five pretty different paths. I think they're going to be all mixed together, 
but it still helps to 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 think about them separately because it makes them easier to uh, track. For instance, there's the classical artificial intelligence. You just build a big machine and and uh, hope you can figure out some way to make it very very smart. Or really, one that is very much, I think, in a lot of people's mind now is simply that the internet plus the people on the internet. So the internet, it's computers, it's support software, it's server farms, and then uh, billions of human beings, those together could come to constitute a, a superhuman entity that would qualify as giving us a singularity. Another path to the singularity that in, in many ways is the most attractive and, and actually, it was also the topic of the of the first science fiction story I ever wrote that uh, sold is the notion of uh, intelligence amplification, which is that we get user interfaces with computers that are that are so transparent to us that it's like the computer is a, a David Brink calls it our neo neo cortex. What's nice about that is that we actually get to be direct participants. And in that particular case, by saying how the post-singularity world is unintelligible, well, yeah, it is unintelligible to the likes of you and me, but it would not be unintelligible to the participants that are using intelligence amplification. I have a friend in, in robotics that I brought this up with long, long ago, and he said, well, Werner, I, I, I really don't have any argument with the claims you're making about what's going to happen, except this business about it being unintelligible says it's not un unintelligible if you are riding the curve of increasing intelligence. And then he smiled and said, and I intend to ride that curve. There are at least two other possibilities. One is simply bioscience raising human intelligence by you know, enhancing our memory, enhancing our ability to uh, uh, think clearly. And then I think there's one that, uh, that uh, is becoming more evident, but is sort of, sort of off stage, and that is the notion of a digital Gaia. The digital Gaia being the, uh, the sort of internet under the internet that consists of all the networked embedded microprocessors in the world. And the, the digital Gaia is certainly the most alien of the different possibilities. In fact, I sort of like to trot it out to give an example of how uh, of something that's pretty obviously very strange and hard to understand. If you could imagine something like where the world becomes its own database, where reality itself wakes up. Actually, more than anything else, it looks like some sort of implementation of animism. So that particular possibility, digital Gaia, is, to me, is certainly the most alien and um, in some ways the most nervous-making because if the world woke up, then a lot of our common sense about the world is not uh, valid anymore. Carl Schrader had a, had a great book that discuss this sort of possibility that that was his novel Ventus V E N T U S. Okay, and so uh which works of science fiction do you think uh have featured the best treatment of the singularity? Probably the uh, most courageous uh walk through into the singularity was Accelerando 
by uh, Charles Strauss, he actually follows the development from, I, 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 I think, from the 20 teens through the 2070s. But he also said that by the time he got to the 2070s, he's no longer seriously claiming that what he's describing would be like the post-singular world. And I think that comment was probably, I suspect that comment was related to the fact that the notion that after several decades of this, things would be seriously beyond what we could explain to a, a, a what a writer uh, could understand in our era and what the uh, uh, readers of our era would would understand. As a retired math professor, how useful do you think mathematical models are for predicting the future? There, there's a lot of different things that go under the name mathematical models. Uh, Moore's law is uh, an observation about the past that's turned around as an extrapolation about the future. And there's um, a lot of different things that could be that are mathematical models. And my attitude toward them is very cautious. And I think one of the most important nonfiction books so far this century is uh, Nassim Taleb's The Black Swan. But I fear that what's happening with that book is a lot of people give it lip service. Oh yeah, uh, Taleb really has has good point in the Black Swan about not trusting certain sorts of models. The thing is, there are mathematical models that are so seductively attractive that even though people recognize that they are are are, are not workable, they still go and and use them because they are so easy to use and they give such definite answers. So that's a book I recommend for everybody to read and it and it illustrates fundamental problems with, with with dealing with models when you're also dealing with people. Uh, Ray Kurzweil has gotten a lot of attention recently for his optimism about extending human lifespans. Uh, what do you think about his predictions? Uh, first of all, I'm all for human life extension. Uh, in in the singularity is near. I think he has a, uh, a a nice discussion of the the situation that a lot of essayists have, that where they say, "Oh, well, we really don't want that." You know, a, a wise and philosophical person realizes that life needs be limited, and that's a good thing. These essayists say, and uh, he. Uh, does a good job of criticizing that point of view, and I and I certainly agree with that. And furthermore, I think that a human lifespan of a thousand years with post-singularity technology is uh, easily doable. I, I I think a lifespan of a thousand years would actually do, you know, singularity aside, it would do human human society and human nature a great deal of good. And I don't think it, 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 is, it is that difficult. It probably can be even be, even be achieved without having a, a technological singularity. Uh, lifespans of 10,000 to 100,000 years, then you begin to look at, at what's involved, the humans that are involved, and, and how capable a, a human mind is of, of, of absorbing variety. Larry Niven had a story many years ago called The Ethics of Madness, in which it's, it's not the main point of the story, I don't think, uh, main point of the action. But the 
the story includes the notion of a person who lives to be one or two hundred thousand years old. And it is really scary what they're like in the, in the last hundred thousand years or so. It's, it, it raises some questions about what it means to be alive. It's really not what you would want. And this is a different sort of complaint than the complaint of all these people that says, oh, man was not meant to live, humans were not meant to live more than a uh, hundred years or so. The complaint or the criticism here is that the human mind has a certain level of ability to handle different sorts of complexity. And if you believe that you could go 100,000 years and not be turned into a repeating tape loop, well, then let's talk about a longer period of time. How about a billion years or 100 billion years? At 100 billion years, you're out there re-engineering the universe. The age of the universe becomes your chief longevity problem. But there's still the issue of what would it be like to be you after that? And this raises the point, which I'm actually I'm sure is, is also on, on Ray's mind, that if you're going to last that long, you have to become something greater. And the singularity is ideally set up to, to supply that. So the people who are into the um, intelligence amplification mode of looking at these things, this all fits. And, and, I, I, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that in a, in a critical or a negative way. It does all fit, and it, it puts you in a situation where you are talking realistically about living very long periods of time, perhaps so long that you have to re-engineer the universe because the universe is not long-lived enough. And at the same time, you have to be growing and growing and growing, I mean intellectually growing. Now, if you look at that situation, it ultimately gets you, I think, to, to a, a, a very interesting philosophical point, which really was not something I don't think was within the horizon of what people normally thought about two or three or four hundred years ago. And that is, if you did grow intellectually, would you be the same person? Well, most of us would argue that we are pretty much the same person as far back as we can remember. You know, we have changes in viewpoint, but what you were when you were five and what you were now, there is cer certainly a community of self-interest there, and uh, it probably doesn't bother most people too, too much. They feel good about what they know now, and they feel sympathetic to what they were then. Compare yourself to, your, to the zygote that became you. There's a little bit more of an empathetic stretch necessary there. And I'm sure that I understand my zygote as well as it ever understood itself, but I bet you that it doesn't understand me very well. And in fact, I am the amount of it that's still in me is at a very low level. And even in terms of the genes, there's what's happened to the, in terms of epigenetic things that's happened uh, since that uh, zygote began to, uh, to grow. Push that further, and the little part of the of this story that actually is you becomes more and more diluted. So, if you really are serious about talking about living forever, not just living for a thousand years or a hundred hundred thousand years, if you're really serious about that, you come face to face with the same general issues that the uh, singularity raises, and that is issues of identity and mind. And I don't. I don't mean this as pessimistic, and I certainly don't mean it to put down the idea of living for 
a very long time, but it just raises the issue that in a very cool way, we have um, come to a point where we can talk with some realism about getting the things that humans have always wanted so much and actually facing that up close and seeing that we can do it, it um, pushes optimism to the point where it is not unreasonably um, something that makes, makes people nervous. So I listened to a talk where you mentioned that one of the drawbacks of the space program is that it would give a lot more people what amounts to WMD capability. Could you talk about that? That was a talk that uh, if you Google my name and the phrase, what if the singularity does not happen? That, that was in that talk. And I'm, I'm very proud of that talk, partly because I think that scenario planners and uh, science fiction writers in general, it's always good if you have some idea about what the future is going to be like, that you also work on a scenario where it doesn't happen and try to explain plausibly why it might not happen. And actually, one doesn't have to scratch the talk very deeply to see that it's the background for my novel, um, A Deepness in the Sky. Most of the talk, latter part of the talk is how important space travel is for human survival. But there is also the fact that in the short term, at least, when all our eggs are still in one basket, namely on the surface of the Earth, that being able to get something up to orbital speeds gives it a lot of kinetic energy. And those levels of kinetic energy uh, are comparable, with, the, depending on the mass involved, comparable to some pretty serious weapons that could do us grief at, at least at a city level. So I think actually, as with all technologies, there are dangers and downsides I would say these are relatively uh, mild. Probably, if we do get space flight, there's going to be rules of the road for, for anything inside cis lunar space. And there's going to be people watching pretty carefully, uh, especially objects that are very massive. Uh, anybody who, who sends an asteroid into cis lunar space, I think it's going to be watched very, very carefully. Uh, because there you're getting up to a level of uh, a, a kinetic energy weapon that would uh, you know, do serious damage to everybody on Earth. I have a small theory that this is one reason why space travel has gone, space travel development has gone slowly, in that uh, it gives military advantage in an unclear way, and the top players were not interested in um, in poking that particular gorilla. So they just, you know, settled for very, very much slower uh, uh, progress. I think we are entering an era now where we will see a renaissance in uh, space flight. I hope it's not, I hope it's not a military renaissance, which would do the job, but would probably raise the uh, risks of the sort of uh, uh, threat uh, that, that you are talking about. And ultimately, of course, having self-sufficient settlements off Earth is um, one of the most important insurance policies that the human race uh, can have. Since we don't know about any life anywhere else in the universe, one could also regard it as an insurance policy for life itself in the universe.
See, another thing in that lecture that you talked about that, that really struck me is that you seemed fairly optimistic about the potential for human civilization to rebuild itself following a complete collapse. And I'd always sort of imagined that having extracted all the easily obtainable uh, oil and coal and stuff, uh, it would be very difficult. Uh, could you talk about the, the issues with that? That's a really important point, how, how difficult it is to come back from a civilizational collapse. And um, I, I'm going to say some optimistic things here, and I don't, I, don't, I don't mean them to trivialize what happens if you had a civilizational collapse. I mean, if we had a civilizational collapse, even a fairly mild one, you and I and John would probably be dead, almost certainly be dead. And a serious, a serious uh, collapse that involved a, a, you know, most of the people dying would obviously do that to most most of the human race. And it could, you know, it's just absolutely ghastly. On the other hand, I think that coming back would uh, would actually be a, a very big surprise. The difference between us and us, say, thirty thousand years ago, or let's say ten thousand years ago. The difference between us and them is there are obvious differences, like the level of our technology, but there's another more important difference, and that is we know it can be done. And I think the human race wandered around for tens of thousands of years, sort of bouncing from one stupid solution, mean-spirited solution to another, because we had no idea what could be done. Now. One aspect of that you, you brought up when you were talking about we've mined all the easily accessible stuff, I disagree with that, uh, with one exception, uh, fossil fuels. I agree when it comes to fossil fuels. But almost every other resource, and, and, and well, I, actually, I should also say if we had a really bad collapse and managed to destroy the, the ecosphere, that's another resource that would be, you know, hard to get at. Uh, but the stuff that we mine otherwise, we have concentrated that. I imagine that cities, ruins of cities, are richer ore fields than most of the natural ore fields that we have used historically. And not only at the level of ore, but at, at a level of all sorts of technological things. Just pre-built steel beams in large cities are all over the place. And they're quite hard to make. If you if you if you really got knocked back a long way, they're they're quite hard to make. Other sorts of technology becomes more higher sorts of technology becomes more and more debatable whether you would still uh, whether it would still be working. But it's it's obvious that a lot of sort of bulk technology is just there for the picking up and that this would make things go very, very fast when combined with the notion that we know what's going on. Depending on how far we got knocked back, we'd have lots of detailed knowledge, even humans that remembered what things were like. So for reasons like that, I think that although technology built from scratch, say by people who had no idea, not only had no idea about technology, but no idea that it could even be done, in a world where there were no ruined cities, yeah, that would be something that uh, would be very problematical to happen in, in any near near term sort of way. I had a very interesting chat with uh, David Weber a few years ago. We were wandering around uh, American Library Association dealers floor 
chatting about uh, this exact issue. And I found that actually David Weber was, uh, David Weber had a, a point of view that, that I've come to subscribe to, which is even more optimistic. And that was, his assertion was that human population could be a long time coming back just because of human biology, but that he felt that if we did not get wiped out, you know, if there, if there were humans left afterwards, that there would be areas on Earth at 1800 to 1900 levels of technology within one human lifetime of the crash. And I thought about that a lot, and I, and I, I can see how it kind of fits with the rest of the argument that I was peddling, but but that I didn't have that much uh, optimism for. Now, having said all that, I I am afraid that it leads to that may, might lead some people to the conclusion that I'm saying, oh, it will be a bad day or two, but don't worry about those disasters. You know, uh, we'll muddle through and be be back as good as new before you can say uh, Jack Robinson. And I am not saying that. First of all, there are disasters that could could kill everybody, and there's also just the the level of destruction that we are that we are talking, you know, in the in the, in the level of, uh, of of just human human tragedy and and the tragedy for for the Earth. Looking at the universe as a whole, furthermore, it is entirely plausible that there are disasters that nobody ever climbs out of. And so I would say that I am just as concerned about uh, <laughs> disasters as as anyone. I have this this region uh, of the problem that I'm more optimistic about than 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 some people. But overall, it, it, avoiding existential threats is at the top of my uh, to do list. Uh, so within the science fiction field, two of the concepts you're best known for are the idea of the zones of thought and the idea of the gestalt sentient species. Could you just talk about how you came up with those ideas? Both the uh, the zones of thought and the and the times group mind critters were st started out in the in the same milieu. The zones uh, of thought were my attempt. To get around the limitations that it seems to me that the technological singularity imposes on us, us science fiction writers, and the magical assumption—and it is a magical assumption—about the, the zones of thought is that is that superhuman intelligence is simply uh, impossible in certain parts of the uh, of the galaxy. And then, it, it, as sort of a fillip, I added two other zones. One was an intermediate zone in which. Uh, Superhuman intelligence was not possible, but faster than light drives were. So I was able to have, uh, in one universe, I was able to have three or four different uh, uh, subgenres of hard science fiction. You know, one's about the technological singularity, one's about faster than light travel, and one's where uh, faster than light travel is not possible. And then there was a fourth zone, which is sort of essentially intractable, and that is uh, where human level intelligence even human level intelligence is not possible and that's the un unthinking depth so that gave me a, a a nice single universe that i could have accomplished otherwise otherwise only by doing it as a progression in time as technology improved different things becoming possible
the, the times were not really to solve a problem like the zones were. The times grew out of a out of my idea box. As, as ideas occur to me, I, I write them down. And and I think one idea I, I or observation that I made a long time ago was that uh, when I read science fiction stories, I noticed that there were all sorts of science fiction stories about group minds. The Borg was not the first such. They they go back, uh, you know, probably to the beginning of the 20th century, and they were very big in in uh, the Star Maker by Olaf Stapleton. Uh, but one thing I noticed about uh, these uh, stories about group minds is that the group minds usually involved very large numbers of members. The individual participants, the individual members, might be of human intelligence, or they might might be of only animal intelligence, but the ensemble was actually a very large group. And I noticed that there was hardly ever any group minds where there was only three or four or five members. It definitely had been done. For instance, Paul Anderson um, had, a, had, a, had a novel, I think, in the Flandry series that involved um, a, a race where, where each individual is actually from a different species. It was an avian type and a, and a uh, herbivore type, and then I think there was a, an, an ape type. And it took, the, it took the three of them to make a single person. That may be the only such story that I remember, it, at least at the time I made the observation. So that had been lying around in my idea box for a long time, and uh, I decided to use use it. And I and I think my the great piece of good luck, from a purely writer standpoint, in using the idea was that I, I decided to make the group, the members, to be from a species that was at least vaguely dog-like. So that meant that I had a lot of a lot of leverage with what we humans are already familiar with. We're familiar with dealing with dogs as individuals, we're familiar with dealing less familiar but somewhat familiar with dealing with dogs as part of of pack-like groups. So an awful lot of stuff sort of came along with that idea and I did not have to further explain those sorts of things. They were sort of already rooted in the consciousness of most uh, readers. So adding the notion that the pack itself was intelligent meant that a whole lot of things were very, very easy to do, and lots of language was easy to use in, in terms of packs and in terms of, of, of group behavior. Uh, so your latest novel is called The Children of the Sky. Uh, could you talk a bit about what that's about? Yes, The Children of the Sky is a is a sequel to a fire upon the deep. And when I say sequel, I mean sequel is that term is, is understood by most people nowadays. I have sort of made a career of writing strange sequels, like sequels that take place 50 million years later, or sequels that, that take place 20,000 or 10,000 years earlier and things like that. This is really a, a canonical sequel. It, has, it takes place two to 10 years after the end of uh, a fire upon the deep. It, it has many uh, many of the surviving characters from a fire upon the deep, and it it follows along with their uh, problems. So it's not giving anything away, but it, one disappointing thing about it is that it really doesn't get into space. It's all on the on the times world, and it's about the travails of the uh, children 
that is the refugee children, who have now all been revived. Almost all the survivors have been revived from the uh, refugee ship in uh, A Fire Upon the Deep. And so it follows their adventures along with these pack-minded creatures called, called the Tines. And finally, just are there any new or upcoming projects you'd like to mention? I'm, I'm trying to decide what's the right, the right next thing to write. And uh, I've gotten quite a bit of feedback of people who want uh, the sequel to the sequel, that is the sequel to The Shown in the Sky. And I, and I do have ideas for that. I also have ideas for you know, near future things on Earth, which tie in more to the sort of things that we've been talking about uh, earlier in, in this interview. Every time I turn around now, you know, it's 2012. We are going into the middle of things. And it, I, it may be my imagination, but I think there's all sorts of things that are visible now that were not so visible before. And, and I think that there's all sorts of really cool science fiction that, that folks could write. And, and I hope to be one of those folks. All right. Well, Werner Vinge, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, my pleasure. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Werner Vinge for joining us on the show. And for the second half of the show today, I'll be chatting with my old friend Tobias Bakel, and we'll just sort of be reminiscing about old times and catching up on what he's been up to. And as we're recording this, John is really sick, so he's taking the night off. Okay, so Tobias Bakel is the author of science fiction adventure novels such as Crystal Rain, Ragamuffin, and Sly Mongoose, as well as the New York Times bestseller The Cole Protocol set in the world of the video game Halo. His latest book is called Arctic Rising, a near-future eco-thriller. So, Toby, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, yeah, I mean, since we just had our, our Werner Vinci interview, I guess the first thing I just wanted to talk to you about was, I seem to remember you telling me that Werner Vinci is one of your favorite, if not your favorite authors, and that you'd read A Fire on the Deep like 25 times or something. Am I remembering <laughs> that right? More than 25, but yeah, I'm uh, a huge fan of, of Werner and was lucky enough to actually tell him that when I was ran into him at Comic-Con in 2008, I think. I had a chance to just chat with him, and his book, A Fire Upon the Deep, really kind of just pushed all my buttons. I really enjoyed it, and when I was in high school, uh, I was a very fast reader, still am, and read it just a crap load of times to try and figure out how he did what he did. I even paid my sister to go through and count all of the pages and how many pages there were to a chapter and kind of figure out how many words there were to a page so I could kind of graph out how he did the novel and with which POVs to sort of create a structure of the product to kind of wrap my head around how he did the book. Well, actually, I wanted to talk to you about your childhood because that's interesting. I mean, you told me once, I think, that your earliest memory is your mom like shouting at you to get away from the windows because she didn't want you getting shot. Right. Yeah, I uh, I was born in 1979 in Grenada, which is when it achieved independence. And in in 1984 or 1983, 1983 is when the American intervention happened, the invasion to sort of stop the communists down there from going crazier than than they were. And I remember the island was put under martial law. I remember you know my parents fretting about or my mom fretting about trying to get groceries because once the whole island was put under martial law before the Americans came, it was a case of how were we going to get groceries delivered to the house and, you know, how was normal life going to proceed? And 
Yeah, during the invasion itself, one of those early memories is that my mom was terrified of me going near any windows. She was just terrified that a, a bullet would go through and, and hit during, during the uh, invasion. How, how did your family end up in Grenada? I mean, you were sort of a, fam, a, a sort of boating kind of family, right? Yeah, I, my, I'm a third generation yachtsman. My grandfather got bored of living in London and sold his business, packed everyone up onto a boat, and decided to sail the world. Ended up in the Caribbean. My mom joined them in the Caribbean and met up with a local guy down there. And that's how I ended up living, growing up in the Caribbean, being born in the Caribbean. I, we lived on boats. Most of my family still works or is associated with boats. My sister is a cook on a fairly large yacht that goes up and down the East Coast in Caribbean. My aunt kind of restores and maintains boats. My uncle is and sort of uh, maintains boats as well. And my other uncle does electrical work and is an engineer for refitting boats. And so then, okay, so, so I met you uh, at the Clarion Workshop. Yep, in 1999. And I didn't realize this at the time, but you told me later that you had actually shown up there with no money, right? They... <laughs> I had literally five <laughs> bucks in an ashtray in my car. <laughs> so well, just say, like, what was your, your thought process uh, going, going into that? I mean, you know, I was in college. I was a junior in college and I wanted to be a writer. I've wanted to be a writer since I was 15 more than anything in the world. I, I love I love the process. And I, I was a huge reader because I grew up on a boat. I, I saw a real interesting quote from William Gibson once where he said he was probably one of the last generations of writers to grow up without cable TV or the internet or anything like that. And I thought, well, not, you know, I, <laughs> I, I grew up in the, in the, in the 80s, but having a similar experience, I didn't have cable because I was living on a boat. So for me, it was all text. We occasionally would run a generator and run a you know turn on the TV and turn on the VCR and watch movies but for the most part it was all reading and so at some point when i was about 14 or 15 the idea kind of snuck in my head after all these years of reading books and and the first actual book i read was when i was probably 6 or 7 i read a clive cussler novel and then a arthur c clarke's childhood's end and so i've been reading full large adult books since as long as I can remember almost, and it's just been second nature. And I loved it so much. And when I realized one day that there were actually people who made a living doing this, that the the guys, the pictures on the back of those books, those guys actually did this, some of them did this as, you know, a vocation. It just lodged in my 14, 15 year old brain. And it's just like that. I want that. You know, I want to keep my own schedule. I want to stay up all night working on writing. I want to spin tales, make stuff up, lie for a living. In college, I, you know, I, I did the usual English major, creative writing, minor type thing. And my, my biggest complaint, my problem was that, you know, while I did learn some stuff there, the actual mechanics of a business, be, of, of trying to learn the business of being a, a paid writer, someone who can make a living at it, is not really taught in a lot of programs. And so, you know, I saw that there would be actual live working full-time science fiction writers who would be teaching this workshop at Clarion and applied and, and did my best to get out there. And it was one of those leap of faith things because I didn't, I, I didn't have the money to do it. I literally, <laughs> I, I just applied and said, I will figure this out by force of will later. And then when I got in, I was just, it was one of those, oh crap moments where I was like, okay, I'm in now what, you know, I went to my parents didn't have a lot of money. They just kind of said, well, that's very wonderful, but how are you going to pay for it? I'm like, I have no clue. And I 
think it was like $3,000 at the time, but I basically went everywhere around the university and banged on doors, professors' doors, anyone in administration, and I would just sit down and say, hey, I thought I was getting, um, you know, my major here was creative writing, and I thought I was going to get taught how to become a writer, and no one's really taught that. So I'd like you to figure out how to send me <laughs> to this workshop, you know, because I'm paying you guys just tremendous, sickening amounts of money to go to this private, you know, college. And the one thing I want to do in life, you're not really helping me achieve. So it's like, can you figure out how to divert some of this money in some way to help me go? And I just kept making appointments and knocking on doors until they started giving me little uh, uh, scholarships, enough to pay for half of of the workshop. Everything except for room and board. And since room and board wasn't billed in advance, I was just like, okay, I'm going to show up to Clarion with no idea how I'm going to pay this last, you know, twelve, thirteen hundred dollars and ask if I can wash dishes or, you know, cut grass while I'm also at the workshop. So I literally, my first day there... I showed up with no idea how I was going to pay for half the workshop and, and literally $5 in my ashtray, which was gas money and a little bit of food money to get me there. So I had no idea what I was going to do when I got there and immediately went to one of the administrators, uh, Lister Matheson, who sadly just passed away not too recently. But I went to Lister, this sort of uh, uh, larger-than-life Scottish guy, and I said, look, here's my situation. I've got $5 in spare change in my ashtray. <laughs> And I need to pay for the other, you know, the room and board side of this whole thing because I don't have a nickel to my name and I would like to wash dishes or cut grass or whatever it is that it would take for me to earn that money while I'm here. And he would, everyone was just sort of very nice and they, they found me some scholarships so I didn't have to wash dishes and cut grass while I was there. But uh, yeah, it was, you know, until the scholarship money arrived, I, I literally was not sure how I was going to eat or anything the next day. <laughs> Uh, and I mean, you, you know, we were both in college at the time and you sort of, I mean, you, you sort of said that you didn't go to class a lot in college, that you kind of felt like a lot of the stuff was just sort of a waste of time. And, you know, I, I talk to a lot of younger writers these days and those, you know, I, I almost want to tell them like, don't bother going to college. It's, don't, <laughs> don't bother going for a, like an English degree or something. And I feel sort of irresponsible saying that but that's kind of like how i honestly feel it's just so much money and i don't know what do you do you, what's kind of your take on on college overall looking the back on it now college has doubled even since i was in it and when i started work as a financial blogger once as one of my freelancing gigs they asked me what was my biggest financial mistake and i said college like I don't even have to think about it twice. On the one hand, I don't regret meeting my, my current wife. I have, you know, a wonderful wife. I have, you know, twin daughters. I, I don't regret that. I met some really nice people. I made some good friendships. But the fact of the matter was I went to a, a small private college and racked up a tremendous amount of debt because my my stepdad had agreed to, you know, cover some costs. And he ended up having to renege and left me with all of all of the debt for that degree and boy i just i don't see the value proposition i i really don't i would have you know really have been better off just uh, obviously probably going to a smaller like a state school and and banking that that money but it's it was valuable in this and this is the one part i don't regret when i was in high school my senior year i'd gone to three different schools my senior year 
didn't really know anyone. I'd just come up from the islands. I was living in Ohio. It was culture shock. It was crazy, kind of depressing. And what I used college for was four years to practice writing and buy myself some space to sort of pursue this idea that I would become a writer. And I don't think I would have been able to do that if I'd been working a sort of blue collar job and coming home tired every night. You know, I spent a summer working at McDonald's and I didn't get squat written. And I knew that if I pursued a job of some sort and there's there like where I was located, there were, it was hard to find decent paying jobs uh, short of like uh, factory work. And I just knew that if I went into sort of a lifetime of blue collar work, it would be really tough for me to find the energy and creative energy at the end of the day to continue the writing that I was doing. And so I knew I needed to get into sort of a protected environment to spend four years where I could really throw myself at writing. Of course, that made me a horrible student because I went into college with that attitude that knowing that this was four years to sort of throw myself at trying to become a writer, particularly when I realized I wasn't being intellectually challenged at the location I was at. So basically, my goal was to see how few days I could go to class and not fail <laughs> and bank all the extra time towards writing. So I basically went, I had about a 40% attendance rating on average to my classes. And 60% of the time that I wasn't spending at class, I banked on writing. I was writing, you know, a thousand words a day, 500 words a day, at practicing reading, thinking about writing, just really throwing myself at, at, at the whole idea of, of becoming a writer. So I don't regret it, but I do sort of like think like if I had been able to see into the future, it would have been like, let's go to a state school where I can, you know, come out of it with 15 or so thousand dollars worth of, you know, debt rather than the, the 60 or so I currently enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> One thing you would have to say for the school, right, is that you were able to keep you, – you got a job there, right, after you graduated working in the yeah. computer lab, yeah. Uh, yeah. which I gather – wasn't your shift from like midnight to 6 a.m. or something something like that, and you got I a worked, lot of writing done I worked during that? Night. Yeah, but I actually didn't write on that job. It's one thing – it's another regret in life I had, which is that I'm I'm very sort of like <laughs> – I was way too much of a Boy Scout. I had a lot of spare time at that job because it was, I was working from, you know, dinner time until midnight and I kind of ran the place pretty efficiently. And I, you know, I had a lot more spare time than I needed, but I was very insistent about not writing on the job. One, because I'd read this horrible article about someone who'd been sued for writing on the job and their employer tried to get the rights to their work. <laughs> it just terrified me. <laughs> So I, I never wrote except for on my breaks. I, I would spend a 20-minute break writing, and I would spend my dinner break or my lunch hour writing. And that's where I wrote my first novel and a lot of short stories was basically one hour a day on that lunch break. I would go ahead and take it and write. But I was really insistent about making those boundaries stick. Um, it didn't really help me because in 2006, they announced to me that they were going to let me go after after my contract was up and that I was, you know, going to be cut loose. I was fired, but I was, they call it terminating your contract so that they're, you know, they don't have to feel bad. And at that point, I just kind of like, you know, flew the middle finger and was just like for the next two or three months, <laughs> I'm going to use every spare minute, you know, writing on the job, which is what I should have been doing for five years previous. Cause obviously, you know, it, 
they, you know, they didn't really particularly value me. So, you know, I had this kind of strange loyalty that a lot of people have to the places that employ them. They think of them as, you know, a sort of patron, and so did I. But the truth is that, you know, most places would be, you know, happy to fire your ass if it's in their economic interests, and they really don't care about you. Okay, so, I mean, one thing you said once that really struck me is you said that kind of one of your goals as a writer was to write books that would get minority kid, minority boys in particular to read. Uh, could yeah. you talk about that? There is, I love the genre. I love science fiction. It is my chosen, you know, genre. Absolutely adore it. But one of the things we do have is a complete Darth of characters of color. And it really didn't strike me. I was reading a lot of science fiction and it was sort of something that I had not really popped up and, and hit me in the face until I read Bruce Sterling's Islands in the Net, which the first third of which is set in Grenada, and the second third of which is, is set in India. And although it didn't have the main character, the two main characters are American and, and pasty white, but it had a secondary character who was Caribbean with dreadlocks, who was a badass, and just the first third of it being set on Grenada kind of smacked me upside the head, and I said, holy crap, wait a second. All the stuff that I read is always very Western-centric, and there's very little, you know, focus on the third world, so to speak, you know, the developing world. And I lived there, so it was just one of those moments where sort of this yawning chasm opened up in front of me, and I thought, oh my gosh, where are where are my people? Where are the people I, you know, hang out with? Where are the where are the Lebanese refugees? Where are the Palestinians? Where are the South Indian? people where where the Rastafarians were the Chinese it just sort of was like wow and once you see something like that once you notice that pattern it's really hard to unsee and it wasn't something I really got on on my you know it wasn't something that struck me that I could do in my writing immediately but over time just more and more and more I just uh, started adding it in adding it in and, and experimenting with it and Particularly once I moved away from the Caribbean, I then it, it became even more important because when I was living in the Caribbean, the Caribbean was home. It was what was all around me. It was normal. And when you move away from it and you move somewhere else, you suddenly realize what it is, where it is you were. You know, sometimes you have to leave home in order to understand where you were. And once I did that, it became way more interesting to me to kind of start folding in these these general ideas and. What I wanted to do was just uh, bring in more characters of color in, into my fiction. And, you know, hopefully I've succeeded and, and hopefully people enjoy that. The young minority boys in particular is because uh, we don't get a lot of fiction aimed at them. So, I, you know, some of these space adventures that I was writing is, is just sort of something I would have liked to have seen when I was younger. I mean, also you also told me once that one of your goals was to get black characters onto the covers of space opera kinds yeah, of books. Yeah, totally got it. <laughs> sort of what's your experience been with with that, with the covers? Because, I mean, that's been a big thing in publishing, sort of whitewashing and publishers being reluctant to put black characters on the covers of books. I mean, just what's yeah, what's your what's been your experience with that? I've had a, a wonderfully, perfectly awesome experience at Tor, which was that you know, for the science fiction adventures, they tend to like to hire an artist to depict a character. And it's sort of unescapable. You know, my characters are very much Caribbean and black. You know, Pepper has dreadlocks. Uh, you know, the other characters are Caribbean. 
as some of them are are South American. So uh, when you turn in the manuscript and they and they get the artist, it's there's no way they would be confused about <laughs> what who the characters are. Very hard to get confused about it. And so we've gotten some great covers. Todd Lockwood, you know, has been a great artist. He did Crystal Rain Ragamuffin and Sly Mongoose, and we have black action heroes on the on the cover of space opera space opera novels and it's it's been awesome so it's been weird in that i've seen all the whitewashing go down i've heard about whitewashing but i actually had a very comfortable experience i've gotten more pushback from sort of of readers than from the publisher what what sort of pushback you've gotten from readers there's a sort of uh, older white conservative readership inside of uh, science fiction that occasionally feels compelled to write to me and tell me that it's kind of insane for me to write about, you know, a future galaxy populated by lots and lots of minorities because they believe that minorities don't have the technical capacity to end up in outer space. And so therefore the future is going to be mostly white and all English speaking. So you occasionally get people who, set out to write you letters about that and uh yeah that's always fun and exciting um i mean could you talk a little bit more about the covers just in terms of marketing i mean i i love all the covers of those three books but it seems like the bookstores maybe weren't such a big fan of the ragamuffin cover like what was going on with that we had a lot of trouble actually primarily with crystal rain and what happened was when it first started coming out a lot of booksellers on the ground, the people who were hand-selling my books sent me emails saying, the problem is that it doesn't have a genre signifiers on it. It's just an airship with a couple people on it. So, you know, is it steampunk? Is it is it fantasy? A lot of readers assume it's fantasy based on the cover, particularly because Todd Lockwood is extremely well-known in fantasy, and his style is fairly recognizable. Um, he's really famous for doing... R.A. Salvatore's books. So that was a, a problem that a lot of hand sellers said they had trouble overcoming, which is they tried to get military SF or space opera readers or classic SF adventure readers, and they would just see the cover and they would just reject wanting to pick it up. And we had the same problem with Ragamuffin. So I, I have like six or seven emails from hand sellers from each book that said, you know, we're really having trouble with the, with the covers based on that. Not the art itself. The art is beautiful. I actually have Crystal Rain hanging up in my office. I think it's a fantastic cover. But it's just one of those weird marketing things where people were just saying it looks like it's fantasy. The paperback of, of Crystal Rain was even picked up by Walmart, who I think may have assumed it was a fantasy <laughs> book. And it was not. And so it had a really high rate of returns based on that because a lot of readers were just sort of confused about what the cover said versus what the cover copy, the description of the book said. You know, and, and we, we finally did get it right on Sly Mongoose. Sly Mongoose has a cover that has genre signifiers that look exactly like what's inside of the book. And that, unsurprisingly, has had some of my first, uh, my best first week sales. And, and the cover did, you know, extremely well. It's got a Rastafarian looking, dreadlocked, awesome badass in uh, mechanized power armor with a big honking fat gun, you know, and that's like, that's what you're going to get if you go into this book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, so it's for Sly Mongoose. So you're, what, you were at a convention, right? And you saw this lecture by Jeff Landis. Um, yeah. Uh, Jeff Landis is an old friend. I used to go to a workshop up in Cleveland that he ran, and 
I was at a science fiction convention and he kind of mentioned that he was going to be giving a lecture on Venus. Now he's obsessed with Mars. He's a NASA rocket scientist and he's worked on the missions that are up there right now that are you know, trundling around. He's been involved in those, those Mars missions. And so he just knows a ton about Mars. He's even wrote a, a real good book, Mars Crossing about Mars uh, science fiction, of course. And he's a great science fiction writer as well. And he just pulled me aside one day at the science fiction convention. He said, hey, I'm going to be giving a presentation about Venus. He's like, and you should come to it. So I was like, nah, okay, sure. So I go to this presentation about Venus. I'm sitting there in the audience. And he just starts blowing my mind with these facts and ideas about Venus that I'd never even particularly known. The one of which is that he says, you know, Venus, if you look at it right, is the most Earth-like environment in the entire solar system. Which has, of course, everyone in the audience going, <laughs> <laughs> and he says, but you have to be in the right place. And that right place is, if I remember right, it's 100,000 feet off the ground. Because if you're high enough off the ground in Venus, the crushing atmosphere is not, you know, the sort of thing that will reduce, it, you know, everything into a crumpled heap. It's the same pressure as Earth at 100,000 feet. And instead of being like boiling hot and melting anything that you expose, it's actually Earth comfortable. So if you're at 100,000 feet, you don't have the crushing pressure, you don't have the crushing temperature, and you're above the acid rain. It literally rains acid on Venus. It's like the most hellacious place on Earth. But if you're above the clouds, well, it's not raining acid on you. So that's cool. The other interesting thing about Venus is that its atmosphere is so dense that if you take something the size of a city and you fill it with normal ambient pressure air, it floats because it's sort of like it's less dense than the atmosphere that is in Venus. So Venus is incredibly buoyant. In fact, the Russian probes that, that landed there, Venera, they didn't have parachutes. They just were pressurized and would just rocket through the dense atmosphere, slow down and slow down, slow down. And then because the atmosphere was so thick, they didn't even need a parachute. They would just land slowly and hit the ground, which kind of boggled my mind when I found that out. So you kind of put all that together and you have this idea like, oh my gosh, you could float cities up there and it would be very comfortable. So you take a Venetian type planet, which is what I did, a planet called Chilo, and you just transport all the you know variables over to that and you kind of, have, you know, you've got a real cool setting for having a lot of fun. And that's the basis for Slime Mongoose. It's floating cities. Basically, if you've ever seen Star Wars, you know, you know why does Sky City just sit up there and, and, and you know, in the middle of nowhere? Well, you know, now we have physics <laughs> that make a cloud city make sense. And so I just kind of set out to have a lot of fun with the idea because then, you know, of course, then you've got to have blimps, right? Because I love those. I'm, you know, those are always fun. So you have blimps going from city to, float to floating city and you can play with some elements of the submarine adventure genre where, you know, you know, we got to dive to crush depth to escape the bad guys, you know, and <laughs> just stuff like that. And I just think it's so cool that Jeff would just share that with you, that there's not a proprietary attitude toward. It's more you of know, a sort of community. I, I love science fiction for that reason, you know, and I, I love science fiction writers for that reason, is that we're a very supportive bunch. I went up to him after the after his presentation, and I said, hey, Jeff, right, I can think of like a thousand ideas that I can write about this, and I absolutely adore this, like – are you writing a book about this anytime soon? And he's like, no. And I'm like, Jeff, do you mind if I do? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I'll do you one better. I'll give you a CD full of all of my research. 
you know, usually for a book, I, I get sucked into a half a year or so of, of general background research and note taking and, and idea making. Well, I just went home and plugged the CD he gave me into my laptop and copied everything over to a folder and boom, I was done. Yeah, and I mean, and he did use that stuff eventually, uh, right in um, his story, The Sultan of the Clouds. Yep, um, yep. But, you know, you know, you can write Sly Mongoose and you can write Sultan of the Clouds and they're both different and they're both great and, you know, it's just benefits everybody. I think so, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I was very open about it in the back of the book. I kind of, you know, I dedicated the book to him and I told, you know, in the, in the author's notes in the background, I explained, you know, hey, Jeff's the one who gave me this idea. So that was your Xeno Wealth series, right? Where did you go after that? Was that the Halo novel next? Yeah, I wrote a Halo novel after Sly Mongoose. So how'd that come about? You know, I have an Xbox 360 and I, I play a lot of Halo. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I visit my publisher, you know, a couple times a year at least. I try to get out to New York. And one of the other editors there that I ended up hanging out with uh, was in charge of the gaming tie-in lines for, for Halo. But... Uh, you know, without me even re really realizing that, he and I just kind of ended up hanging out together because we were both roughly the same age. We were in our 20s, I think, late 20s. And, you know, uh, we just kind of had a lot of stuff in common. And a couple of years later, I think after first meeting him, he finally hit me up one day and said, hey, you know, we're doing, we need a new Halo author. Would you be interested in putting your name in the in the hat? We'll send a couple of books or a bunch of books out to the you know, Bungie headquarters, and, and they can see if there are any of our authors that kind of leap out that they like. And, you know, fortunately for me, Bungie liked Crystal Rain, my first Xenowulf book, and thought that was pretty interesting and asked if I'd be interested in doing a Halo book. And like I said, I, I, I love the video game. I played it a lot. So I was just like, score. This is just kind of a fun project to do for the next, you know, half a year, three quarters of a year. And I got to fly out to Bungie and meet some of the guys who came up and made the game and it was just a, a total a total hoot. Well, I think we have to talk about the most awesome character in the Halo-verse, uh, Lieutenant Dante Kirtley. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it was cool because, you know, I was teaching at Alpha, Alpha Young Writers Workshop, and one of the students had uh, Halo ODST um, background on his laptop. And I said, hey, you know, have you read The Cool Protocol? And he's like, yeah, I've read that. And I said, uh, what would you think of Lieutenant Dante Kirtley? He's like, yeah, he was cool. <laughs> and I'm like, that character's named after me. And he was like, boy, he's like, oh, that's amazing. So that's like the most excited anyone's ever been over anything I've ever said. But you, you, you like tuckerized a bunch of people in that book, right? I tuckerized almost all of my close writing friends in that book. Yes. And uh, a few other friends. My friend Josh Smith, I set on fire. <laughs> uh, there's the uh, Bachigloopy Ecological Nature Preserve that gets burned <laughs> to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh i think uh i think there's a lieutenant tom garantzer who dies horribly my good friend uh jason burt the best man at my wedding i think i killed him off in there too yeah and my favorite scene in that book is actually the fact that i i have the one of the main characters using a mongoose one of those annoying little quad bikes that i hate in the video game because <laughs> they serve no useful function as far as i can tell if you get on it, you get shot off of it because there's no protection. They don't really particularly go all that fast, and they're just kind of there for you to get on and like drive around until you get popped in the head. And I actually have someone pick it up and use it as a club. <laughs> and I thought, there, we finally actually found a use for these things. Um. 
So then uh, after the Halo book, then sort of what, what came next after that? Um, you know, right as I finished the Halo book, I, I uh, collapsed from a, a mild genetic defect on my heart. And so for the past three years, it's been kind of a struggling back from that pause in my career. Didn't you tell me that um, you were in Canada, right? When when weren't you at a convention in Canada yeah, when you collapsed? Yeah, Worldcon. And didn't you say like they they took you to a socialized medicine hospital, and and the doctor actually sort of talked to you for the first time and told <laughs> you like this isn't going to kill you? Uh? Yeah, I had, you know what? I, I collapsed in Canada and and had a wonderful experience because the they took me to the Montreal Cardiology Institute. And, you know, it was, uh, for me, it was a great experience because mostly what had happened was whenever I'd been collapsing down here in the States, the doctors were all very sort of focused on getting me back out of the hospital and, and just making sure I was taking my medicine. And so I was in this sort of indeterminate state of not knowing if I was going to kind of live out the next few weeks or die in a month or just kind of like, you know, what the threat level basically was for my situation. And collapsing in Canada was really cool because uh, one of my doctor friends down here in the States explained it. He's like, no one, you know, doctors are not going to be as incentivized down here to say, oh, you're probably going to live until you're 70 or 80 or, you know, have a long and ha a comfortable life because if you then die the next week, your spouse is going to show up with a lawsuit. And so everyone's really worried about lawsuits all the time. But in Canada, it's, it's less, less of an issue. So, and, and a really good doctor, of course, should focus on holistic, you know, the kind of whole, the whole picture. And when I was in Canada, what happened was that, you know, those darn socialists, they kind of dragged me into the cardiology institute, uh, looked me over, and they gave me a, uh, like, 34-minute kind of interview with a uh, cardiologist who had some experience with people who had what I have. And he sat with me and he says, you know look, you know, what's causing you to collapse all the time is stress. You're stressed out because you just are. You're physically stressing yourself out. You're emotionally stressing yourself out. And he's like, having what you have is kind of like having asthma. He's like, if you take your medicine, take good care of yourself and respect the edges of your envelope, you will live to be, you know, a grandparent. But if you keep trying to work really hard and emotionally stress out and freak yourself out all the time, he's like, you will kill yourself. And he's like, but you're probably going to live a great, happy, normal life. And no one had actually just sat down and said that to me. And after sitting down with him, it uh, took a, just a huge load off. And I haven't been back to the ER since. Uh, you had this uh, short story collection I saw come out called Nascence that I thought was really interesting. It's like okay. bad stories I wrote, sort <laughs> of. Uh, could you tell us about that? Yeah. The idea I had was that I had been talking to another writer about all the different ways in which I'd screwed up my stories, screwed up writing, screwed up, you know, or stuff at the beginning of my career. And they had found that endlessly fascinating. And they kept saying, oh, man, I'd really love to write, read some of your early stuff and, and see how bad it was. And I would just be like, oh, no, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Very embarrassing. And then a couple of editors had emailed and asked, because in interviews, I say that I've, I, I tend to write really fast, and if I don't make the story work, I don't go back and revise it until it's perfect and, and sells. I tend to just give up on it. So I have, I've written, you know, 160 or so short stories. Almost 50 of them have sold, and I have this like 110 or so now that just don't work, and they're they're in my you know files. 
And, and so when these guys here that I have a hundred stories that haven't sold, a lot of them will just kind of email and say, Hey, can we take a look at one of these early stories? Maybe you can revise it. And, you know, and I always have to say like, you know what, it's actually going to be easier for me just to write a whole new story. If you're interested in a story from me, than to have me try to revise one of these old, sucky, horrible, very bad pieces of work. We should just let them die with some dignity. And then I was doing this, uh, I was, I was turning this collection of short stories into an ebook for a writer who I admire. And it was a, re a career retrospective. It was their short stories from the pulp days of like the thirties and forties, all the way up to stuff that they'd written, you know, in the nineties. And they were very much like, wow, these stories that I wrote 60 years ago or more really stink. But it was me in my early days and they were good enough to get published. And, Here's how I came to write it, and here's all the details about it. And it was so cool reading all their notes about all their different stories they'd written throughout their career that I thought, huh, you know, it would be interesting to read a collection that kind of started at pre-publication before the writer had started to sell stories, kind of detailing what they were trying to do and why it didn't work, and going all the way through. And on the, on the other hand, I just started thinking, oh, and maybe there's a way I could sell some of these stories in my trunk to people, but not in a way that either A, insults them by being like, here are a bunch of stories by Tobias Buckel, you know, and then giving people a bunch of crap because I, I don't want to do that. But then I also thought, you know, as a book about writing, this could be really cool. And if readers are really fascinated about where I came from and what my early stories were like, maybe some of the more hardcore Toby fans would, would be interested in reading this. But I have to frame it in such a way that everyone knows what they're getting. And so I came up with that frame of let's talk about this as, you know, writing exercises. Here are the stories I was trying to write before I got published, and here's why they suck. And also, you know, as a totally clever monkey side of things, by saying how they suck ahead of time, you kind of pull the carpet out from under people who would be like, hey, you want to know why these stories suck? Like, dude, I've already done that for you. And so you're also you're using Kickstarter now, too. Uh... Yeah, well, one of the uh, interesting things about my books is that sales have been really steady, but they haven't taken off for the Xenowell series, Crystal Rain, Ragamuffin, Slime Mongoose. They did all right and have held steady. They earn out. But bookstores were not buying as many copies, so the sales there were kind of tapering off, whereas people who had read the series and word of mouth were increasing, but the word of mouth wasn't increasing fast enough to offset the declining bookstore shelf space. So it's just like if you add them all up, it's just flat for the entire, you know, with a little bit of a rise for the entire series. And so my editor and I got together and we started talking about rebooting and doing something different for the next book, which was to become Arctic Rising. And we sort of put a hold on the series. But the most common question I get from those dedicated fans and, and the word of mouth people is, good grief, when's the, ne when's the fourth book going to come out? So after having you know been asked that enough, I just thought, okay, well, I'm very fascinated by crowdfunding. I try to stick my finger in all sorts of pies. You know, I, I, I work with, you know, so-called traditional publishing and I'm very happy with that relationship. I, you know, have an agent. I do foreign sales. It's all very exciting. I work with direct sales, you know, with something like Nascence or my short story collection. I sell it on Amazon's Kindle store. They sell directly. They make me some money that way. 
and I've worked with a medium-sized press f for some other projects. I, I try to, you know, make sure I've got a taste of it all. But crowdfunding, it intrigued me because one of the issues you get with, you know, selling your books digitally is how do you raise enough money to work on the project before it's done? And with crowdfunding, you can basically pre-sell a certain number of books or for a certain number of, for a certain amount of money and go ahead and, and see if the project's even viable before you spend your entire time working on it. And so basically I said, you know, in order for me to basically quit all the freelance gigs I would have to, to focus on this for the six or so months I would need, I would need to raise a certain amount of money and get a certain number of pre-sales. So I was like, well, let's use Kickstarter. Let's put it out there. Let's see if I can make this happen. And if it does, then, hey, you know, I write a book directly for the fans while I'm also writing a book for, for Tor, the next book for Tor. And it'll work out. And much to my extreme surprise and, and happiness, it, you know, the book came just shy of $12,000 raised to go ahead and have me write it, which gave me the time off I needed and the ability to sort of drop a bunch of freelance gigs so I could focus on writing it. So, yeah, I've actually been, I'm about halfway through the fourth book in the Xenowealth series called The Apocalypse Ocean, the sequel to Sly Mongoose. And that's a pretty interesting way of going about it. <laughs> actually, I saw, are you um, giving updates to people as you go? Yeah, yeah. Does that, that not, is that not nerve-wracking? Uh... Yeah, there are six people who paid a certain amount of money to be able to read the book as I write it. And I don't know. It could be nerve-wracking, but it actually really isn't to me because I just have decided to let go and let this be an experiment and not worry about it. You know, there's a lot of rewriting that I'm doing as I'm writing it, and it is very much a case of, oh, you guys are seeing me at my rawest and roughest, but I mean, I think that's actually kind of cool. I think if my favorite writer came up with a, you know... If speaking of your prior guest, if Werner Vinge were to come up with a Kickstarter project that would let me read his next book as he was writing it, I would be the first there with my credit card up in the air, just like I, you know, I would I would read the the rough first draft and then I'll turn around and buy the copy of it when it comes out in its final form. I'll be very excited to read both, just because, uh, you know, as a fan, I would love to see how that process happens. You know, and I, I would understand that there's a difference between the version he's writing as he's going going along and the final product. Uh, okay, so Arctic Rising, uh, what's it about? Arctic Rising is a sort of near-future echo thriller talking about what happens when the north polar ice continues finishing melting up, and you sort of have a resource rush going on in, in that area. So you have just sort of companies going for the oil, companies going for mining rights, and you have shipping companies kind of shipping things over there. And it becomes kind of a wild, wild west. And the main character is a Nigerian airship pilot who works looking for radioactive signals to make sure that people aren't dumping nuclear waste in the area. And it's, like I said, I call it an echo thrill. It's kind of like a techno thriller, kind of focusing on what the landscape looks like after, you know, a lot of climate change has continued happening up there. And uh, it was just on NPR, right? Yeah, I mean, geez, NPR's all things considered. And, and thanks to my publicist at Tor, Alexis Nixon, who, you know, got, their, got the copy out and, you know, helped make this happen, that NPR's all things considered actually gave it a wonderful review. 
and I gather they don't review a lot of science fiction. So it's one of those things where people in the community or people at the coffee shop are like, hey, man, I, I heard about your book on NPR the other day. <laughs> it's kind of a wild experience. I guess John would John would want me to mention, you have some short stories uh, that he bought recently, right? Could you mention those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, the, the name of the last anthology has changed a number of times, so you'll know it, the Barsoom Anthology. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Under the Moons of Mars, New Adventures on Barsoom, yeah. Thank you. Under the, Under the Moons of Mars, New Adventures on Barsoom. That, uh, that has a story of mine called A Tinker of Warhoon, which is, uh, was a lot of fun to write. I had not read the Princess of Mars books in forever for a you know, second or third round, and I just read them the once when I was way, way younger. So it's like when he asked me if I'd write a, you know, be interested in trying to do a story for that. I was just like, yeah, that sounds really cool. And uh, I get to be in it with you, of course. Buddies, buddies in the table. <laughs> and uh, the uh, other thing we did uh, was uh, this uh, story that I wrote with uh, a friend called uh, David Kletcha. And he and I wrote a short story called Jungle Walkers, which will be in the anthology Armored, which you are also in. Yes, right? I am. Yes. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Toby, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. And also thanks to Werner Vinge for joining us on the show. If you have any questions or comments about anything you just heard, please add a comment to our post for this episode over at wire.com. And you can find that by visiting our website at geeksguideshow.com and clicking on the link for episode 56. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarrcurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.